It is a uh, privilege uh, to introduce our speaker th this morning, uh, Pastor Harry Reeder. Uh, Pastor Reeder is an author. He's an adjunct faculty member at a number of seminaries. He's a podcast host, a Civil War historian, and he does the best Dr. Krabbendam impression I have seen in a very long time. Uh, he has a deep history to and connection to both Chattanooga and Covenant College. He is the founding pastor of Christ Covenant Presbyterian Church in Charlotte, and he is the senior pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, where he has served since 1999. He and his wife Cindy have three children and a gaggle of grandchildren, including current Scott, Virginia Turpin. She's over there. Yeah. Um, it is a privilege to have him here with us. Please give a warm Scott's welcome to Pastor Harry Reeder. As my friend, that is a horse barking up the wrong tree. That is a dog of a different color. Yeah, Miss Dr. K. Uh, five o'clock prayer meetings. He did not know you could talk to Jesus after eight in the morning. So we always had to meet at five. And uh, eight trips with him to Uganda. And. Uh, Wonderful ministry. I count him a very effective mentor in my life. Life-changing was my apologetics class under him here. And then the uh, class on James and the class on John. Maybe I'll just take a minute. I really don't want to lose some time to share with you God's Word. But, you know, when you're back to a place like this, you get insight when you're on site. And you remember some things that happened when you were on site. So I was here when this was built. I had the privilege to be the bodyguard for Francis Schaeffer at the American Libri. <clears throat> and uh, in fact, <clears throat> I was just looking over here. <clears throat> he came and had 25 of us sitting right here and talked with us just a couple of months before he died and uh, sharing with us his heart. Uh, so many uh, dynamics of, that you see and feel in a place where uh, when I came and heard the student body sing All for Jesus, I finished my transfer from East Carolina University over here to Covenant College. And when I got here, uh, and Henry Grabendam, Will Barker, uh, Chuck, oh my goodness, uh, Chuck was such a, a wonderful teacher and a friend. So, and I'm praying that you have all those things that you develop in your life, but most of all, this Jesus that you are learning of, that you develop a mind for Christ, having been granted a heart for Christ, and it's manifested in a life for Christ. So I thought if just a few minutes I have with you to take you from a snapshot out of the life of Christ that I think is um, extremely uh, informative. I'm going to do this. Uh, this is actually a 50-minute sermon that is going to break down to the time that we need here, so it'll be edited. But there's just a couple of things I want to share with you. If you've got your copies of God's Word, would you take with, would you look with me or turn in your Bible or turn on your Bible, whichever is the case. I'm honestly, I'm still not used to iPhone, iPad Bibles. I mean, reading the Bible or any book on a iPad to me is, I mean, it's a little bit like kissing your wife through a screen door. Uh, I just, I just 
kind of like to get a hold of the Bible, uh, get a hold of my wife. Um, if, you, if you meet her, you'll know why. So, uh, 53 wonderful years. And all I've got to show for it is you, son. <laughs> Another covenant graduate. Mark 5. Look with me in God's Word. Mark 5. This is the Word of God, inspired, inerrant, infallible, and sufficient. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and with chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out, cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran, fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him, earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs and let us enter them. So he, he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out, and they entered into the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea, drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled, and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that Jesus, that, what it was that had happened, and they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus, depart from the region. And he was getting into the boat, and the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, No, you go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And then everyone marveled. Uh, I'm going to give you a couple of premises. I, while here, decided I was not going to do parachurch ministry. I'm grateful for parachurch ministry, but I love the Lord's church. Jesus died for the church. He shed His blood for the church. It's been purchased with His blood, and the privilege to be a pastor in His church and the calling is extraordinary. It's the one institution in this world that you're going to see in the new heavens and the new earth, and it will prevail no matter what is brought against it, His true church and the opportunity to serve Christ in His church. Now, that means you've got to lead the church on mission. 
It's my conviction that the church has a very narrow mission. It's make disciples. It has a broad message. It is the whole counsel of God. Make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, when we do our job in the church rightly, we turn out Christians who have a broad mission, salt of the earth, light of the world, how to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. But Christians will not be able to do that broad mission in the world unless the church stays on mission, on message, and in ministry. One of the favorite terms in the Bible that Paul loved to use about the church, there are 10 major metaphors, word pictures of the church in the Bible. His And every one of them you'll find in the Old Testament speaking of God's old covenant people except one, and that's the body of Christ. So what does that mean that we are the body of Christ? Okay, I'm pretty simple. I did get an A in Dr. Krabbenham's, but that's because we were friends. But uh, um, the fact is I'm pretty simple on this stuff. So Jesus came into this world 2,000 years ago with a mission and with a message and with his ministry. And he came and he did that mission. And he was very upfront with us about the mission. He said, as the Father sent me, so send I you. Well, what did he send you to do? I have come to seek and to save the lost. That's what I've come to do. And when that's done, you have an unbelievable dynamic as a consequence of cultural transformation. But you don't have, the objective is not cultural transformation. The objective is center transformation. And when they get discipled, they transform everything where they go, the way they work, the way they live, the way they're salt and light. And so I love to take a look at the life of Jesus, at least snapshots. Here is Jesus in an incarnate body. And he is doing the mission and proclaiming the message. Then he ascends, and if I could just be simple about it, to the church. He says, your body number two. What I came to do, you are to carry until I come again for you. So if, I'm, if we are body number two to do what Jesus began to do and teach, then what does that look like? Let's look at Jesus in body number one to understand what we should do as we seek to save the lost. Preaching and teaching the whole counsel of God wrapped in the contours of the saving power of God and what that glorious message called the good news. So here's a moment. I want to give you four things about seeking and saving the lost that you and I can learn from Jesus and download into the life of our churches and then carry out with our own particular gift and call of the Lord. Here's the first thing from the text I want you to see. There is no place that Jesus will not go to seek and to save the lost. He doesn't cross any places off. I went, when I was, came from my first church in Miami to Charlotte, and we went there to plant Christ's covenant, and, uh, and uh, one of my friends in a church planters conference said, well, who is your target audience? And I said, what? He said, who's your target audience? I said, sinners? That's mine. Oh, he said, I mean your demographic. I said, nope, just wherever you put me, I want to reach everybody within that limit. Well, is it the church or the unchurched? No, listen, there's saved people unchurched. Uh, there's saved people in the church, and there are unsaved people in the church. I don't like to use that language unless it give a false assurance. I'm in a church. You can live in a garage. You're not going to wake up a car. Just being in a church and being church isn't going to make you a Christian. 
And so I'm just going to go after everybody I can. And it's this text that tells me this. Listen, where Jesus goes, here's what's happened in the context. Jesus has gotten in a boat. He told the disciples, come with me. They meet a pretty good storm on the way. And then when they get there, and by the way, I think that's Satan trying to keep them from getting there, but it becomes an opportunity for the power of God to be displayed. Because when he gets there, this is a place that demonic presence feels comfortable. This was called Galilee of the Gentiles. In the sweeping movements of Assyria and Babylon and then Greece and then Rome, it had become Hellenized. In fact, you'll notice this place that was the dwelling place uh, in, of uh, two different tribes of Israel has no Hebrew names. It's all Hellenistic names, Decapolis, and that's what it is. In fact, it's a place that is so abhorrent, John Mark can't even bring himself to use its name. He calls it the other side of the sea. Did you ever grow up? I did, where my daddy and mother said, don't go over there to the other side of the tracks. This was the other side of the sea. If Jesus had told his disciples where he's going, I think they would have said, no. <laughs> my mama told me I can't go there. There was hot revivals taking place on the northwestern side of Galilee, but not you today know it as Golan Heights. I have stood right there 17 times where these pigs, demonized, went into that sea. But you wouldn't have gone there naturally, normally. Your mother would have said, no, listen, there's people that live in tombs over there. You don't want to go over there. But there is no place that Jesus will not go. I've got a good friend. We both went. To, I went to Charlotte. He went to Chicago. He planted a church in the loop. And one day we were talking about the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he called me and he said, Harry, he said, uh, I'm not at the gates of hell, but I can smell the smoke right here. And he went right to that place and God gifted him to go to that place. You don't cross any place off in the ministry of the gospel. There is no place Jesus will not go to seek and to save the lost. Number two, there is no power he cannot overcome to seek and to save the lost. Here, here's what I'm, if, he, if he had told the disciples where he was going, oh my goodness, if he had told the disciples where he was going, where he was going, I don't know if they got in the boat. I, if, they, if they had known who they were going to meet, I don't think they would have gotten out of the boat. I mean, here's a guy naked, chains, bloodied, screaming. You see, here's what John Mark has done. In those days, the rabbis had given the five marks of demon possession. And John Mark has woven all five of those into the narrative. Bizarre behavior, supernatural strength. Sexual depravity. Here he is naked, chains, nothing can hold him back. Uncleanliness. My mother would have agreed with that one. Uncleanliness. Number five, necromancy. Communion with the dead. He has woven all five of those marks right into the account. We're not meeting someone that just has some behavioral modification needs. Here is a man, in fact, there's two of them, as you read from the other accounts. John Mark just focuses on this one. 
He is demon-possessed, and all the marks are there upon him. I mean, what if he came in here right now? Right now. Comes in the back door. Chains, naked. He lives down at the cemetery in St. Elmo. Ran up the mountain. Runs in the back door right now. What would you do? I can tell you what I'd do. I'd get behind Grant and say, you've got an evangelistic opportunity. <laughs> there is no person that Jesus will not seek and save. No person. Don't cross any place off. Don't cross any people off. And there's no power that can stop it. You see, there's a lot of times we mess this thing up. How many of us are trying to resist temptation and flee Satan? The Bible says flee temptation, resist Satan. He'll flee from you. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. When, this, when, they, when, he come, when they come up and say, don't torment us, they're saying, don't send us to the abyss. Here, send us to those pigs. Now, hey, there's an insight. If this is a Jewish territory, what in the world are they doing with a herd of pigs? No, this was an apostate place. Demonic activity was welcomed in that culture by the very behavior patterns that were going on. And so they say, don't send us to the abyss. Send us to the pigs, the unclean pigs. Send us there. And Jesus says, okay. And it looks like kind of a nice, you know, Gentlemen, yeah, you don't want to, okay, I'll let you go to the pig. No, here's Hebrew cosmology. When he sends the demons from the man into the pigs, over the cliff, down the hill, into the, you see in Hebrew cosmology, the gospel message is one of a river of life. The sea was the door to the abyss and evil. And he is consigning them into everlasting torment. He is Lord. There is no place that he will not go. There is no power he cannot overcome. Number three, there's no person so lost he can't save them. Don't cross anybody off. Who are the three most prolific writers of the Bible? Arguably, Paul, Moses, David. All three are murderers. One was a religious terrorist. He killed Christians, destroyed churches. He was the Osama bin Laden of his day. There is no person so lost that Jesus cannot save them. That's a confidence you can have no matter who you're talking to. There's no place I'm not to go. There's no power Jesus cannot overcome. I'll flee temptation, but I'll resist Satan. Because I have the armor of Christ, and this, saint, this Jesus has come into this world. He went to the cross. He has not yet destroyed his enemies. He'll do that when he comes back. But when he went to the cross, he defeated his enemies. Sin, death, hell, and the grave. He is Christos Victor. He has won that victory. That means there is no place I will not go, no power he cannot overcome, and no person so lost he cannot save them. I have uh, seen it time against the power of God. Boy, I wish I could just give you all the stories. But I'll try to give you an illustration. You're living in a world that is doing its best to shame Christianity into silence. 
and much of the church is being shamed into silence through cultural accommodation instead of the countercultural penetration of the power of the transforming gospel. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. As Paul says, I'm eager to preach it, and I'm coming to Rome to the power center, and I'm bringing the gospel. You will not shame me into silence. I am not ashamed of that. Join the company of the unshamed. We'll go to any place. We'll go to any person. And there is no power. Paul had already seen it take on the, the uh, economic power and the idolatry power in Ephesus. He had seen it take on the sexual perversion of Corinth. And now he's going to Rome, political, military, economic power. I'm coming with the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When I was a kid, my dad was in baseball and uh, followed his footsteps for a number of years. And, but my dad was in baseball, but he never got to the big leagues. It was always the minor leagues. And, then the, and there's a lot of month at the end of the money uh, in, the, in the minor leagues. So we were, I never knew we were poor, but we were poor. That's just, uh, that's, that was just a fact. But when I was 16 years old, my daddy told me, he said, son, I got you a car. I, there's no way I was expecting a car. At, my, at 16 years of age. Uh, and so um, he said, it's, in, it's back in the driveway. I said, oh, wow. He said, yeah, I got you a 57 Ford. Now, when I was growing up in the mid-60s, if you couldn't get a 57 Chevy, next best was 57 Ford. I could not believe it. I ran out the back door at 1342 Terrington Avenue. I got to the, I looked at that 57 Ford, and I said, and my face hit the ground. I said, Daddy, I can't drive this car. He said, you're going to drive it to school, and you're going to take your sisters to school. I said, Daddy, I can't do this. He said, why not? I said, Daddy, it's pink. <laughs> he said, son, I bought this car at an auction. The South Carolina State Patrol held an auction, and I bought it. It was a South Carolina State Highway Patrol retired interceptor. Now, the word interceptor did catch my attention. And he said, uh, I got it for $75. Now I know why I was getting a car. I said, they pay you or you pay them. How did it work? He said, now look, son, before you get up, I said, Daddy, I've got a reputation. I, this is my pre-Christian years. I got a reputation at East Mecklenburg High School. If I pulled, I'll be in a fist fight every day with a pink Ford. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, that's just what's going to happen. And he said, he said, son, before you get too uppity, come here. Lift up the hood. Look at the engine. It's called a power plant, son. And I looked in, there was a 392, two four barrels. And he said, beside, this isn't a pink car, it's coral. <laughs> I said, Daddy, I'm kind of starting to like this coral car. <laughs> Would you like to know, please remember, I am not giving this as a model. This is pre-Christ. Would you like to know how many times I pulled up to a stoplight and Corvette, 57 Ford, Thunderbird laughed at my 57 pink Ford? They just laughed at it, and I just point. I am now a Christian, so my virtue of humility will not tell you how many of those Corvettes, Thunderbirds, and Chevys were sucked right up the exhaust pipe of my pink Ford. <laughs> The gospel pulls, the people, the world pulls up and laughs at the gospel. 
All you got to do is lift the hood. There's no place we won't go. No person so lost, they won't, God, God won't save them. And no power he can't overcome. Let me give you the fourth and last one, and I'm going to be close. And uh, I'm, um, let me give the fourth and last one. There's no, pl no place he will not go to seek and save the lost. There's no power he cannot overcome to seek and save the lost. And there's no person so lost he cannot seek and save them. And there's no person he saved that he will not use to seek and save the lost. That's you. He'll use you to seek and to save the lost. Do you notice this guy now that he's saved? Don't tell me the gospel doesn't have power. It's got two powers. It's got declarative power. He cancels, he cancels our shame and our sin. At the cross, he nailed our guilt and our sin to the cross and canceled our debt. We are adopted and we are justified. But here's something we're losing in our accommodation of the culture. He also has transformational power of the gospel. Regeneration, not just justification and adoption, also regeneration and sanctification. Here's a man who this is what he was. He doesn't identify anymore with his demonic activity. He now wants to identify with Christ. And basically, he doesn't have a good reputation where he is. So he comes and he says, uh, can I go join your church? Can I get in the boat with you? I've got a sermon series I do. Answered prayer, no. Answered prayer, no. No, you can't. Go home and tell your friends what great things the Lord has done for you. That's what he tells him to do. And so this man goes back throughout the Copolis to tell his family and his friends what great things the Lord has done for him. It is amazing. The next time Jesus, I don't have time to go there, sorry. <laughs> go to Mark 6. Jesus is going to be gone for four months. He's going to come back to the same place that ran him out. Why'd they run him out? Hey, people are getting saved. They ran him out because the world has industries built on sin. Abortion is an industry. Pornography is an industry. Racism is an industry. Those are industries that are built. The world doesn't want those. Just go take a look and see what they did to Paul in Ephesus when he messed up the idolatry industry. So they're going to run him out. We don't want you here. Get out of here. So Jesus comes back months later. Now there's so many thousands, he has to repeat his miracle of the fish and loaves to feed them. Where did all those thousands of people come from? I believe it was the missionary work of these saved demon-possessed men. They went back telling, and the next time Jesus comes, they got thousands coming to him. We call that a great awakening. It doesn't happen without the gospel awakening in our lives and us no person we won't talk to, no place we will not go, no power that he cannot overcome, and no person that he saved that he will not use to seek and to save others. And I'll just finish with this with you. Uh, when I went to Charlotte, we had 38 people at that time in a modular unit, which is a double-wide trailer with the wheels covered up. And we started the ministry. God grew it to 3,000. We were able to plant about 16 churches. But I can never forget some of those early stories. A young lady whose husband had left her with four boys. 
we began to minister to her. She said, yes, my husband has left me, and it's happened before, but I just decided this time these boys need to understand there's consequences. Uh, and we said, well, young lady, we're going to shepherd you, but I'd like to go after your husband. She said, well, basically, she told me, better men than you have tried. And uh, so me and a, another pastor in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, we had the opportunity to reach out and minister to him. Long story short, because I've got to be short, <laughs> he, um, he came to Christ, uh, sat with him, a place called the Chateau Restaurant. I said, here's three things I want to share with you, your situation, God's solution, and our salvation. And so I shared it with him when I finished. I said, is there a reason why you shouldn't commit your life to Christ? Can't think of any. Came to Christ, started coming to church, getting discipled. And there sat uh, the wife with the four kids. And he came to me one day months later and said, do you think she would take me back? I said, I don't know. You forfeited any expectation. Why don't you court her? He did. Long story short, they got married. We did the marriage <laughs> It was an amazing marriage. It was in a gymnasium, which we were renting by now. And they did the marriage, and this guy's way up there in the financial world. So all these CFOs and COOs and CEOs and UFOs, they were all there. <laughs> and, uh, and they're sitting in these chairs, these plastic chairs in a gymnasium watching a wedding. Believe me, that wasn't part of what they were used to. And then they heard the, the testimony of that young man, of that man and that woman. And they saw the four boys like stair steps that were right there with them. And so it was amazing. I mean, people are just sitting there wide-eyed. I mean, one guy told me later, I thought you were going to pull a box of snakes out at any minute. And, uh, I, and, so, uh, and so, but one guy called me the next day. He says, you know, I work with Steve, and uh, he's been telling me about Jesus. And I went to that wedding, and I've never seen a wedding like that before. He said, uh, hey, can I talk to you about that? I said, sure, meet me at the Chateau Restaurant. So we met, and I pulled out another napkin, and I said, here's, I wrote down three things, and I shared them. I said, is there any reason why you shouldn't commit your life to Christ? He said, nope. His name was Harvey. And I said, well, Harvey, uh, let's pray. He took the napkin, stuck it in his Bible, went out. He went back to the lady that he was living with. We used to call it living without the benefit of clergy. And he said to her, he said, um, I'm saved now. I gave my life to Jesus. You've got to move out. And she said, what kind of cult are you in? <laughs> so she came the next Sunday, gymnasium, you know, <laughs> and all these plastic chairs and everything. And she's sitting there, red hair, red face, and I, shooting darts at me. And uh, afterwards, she, but there's only one way out. She had to come by me. So I started talking to her, and there's a young lady in our church. I said, would you spend a little time with this lady? Well, long story short, Beth became a Christian. And we counseled them, and they got married. Well, Harvey worked at the same place Steve did, so all the UFOs and CEOs are back again. And we have this wedding, and, it, and afterward I get a phone call, and it's a guy by the name of Dan. And Dan said to me, you know, I work with Steve and Harvey, and they've been telling me about Jesus. And I went to those weddings. I've never seen weddings like that before. Could you tell me about that? I said, sure. Meet me at the Chateau Restaurant. <laughs> so we met at the Chateau Restaurant, and I, I pulled out a napkin, and I uh, asked him two questions, wrote down three things, and then your, uh, God, uh, your situation, God's solution, and our salvation. And I said, is there any reason uh, why you shouldn't receive Christ as your Lord and Savior? He said, no. And so Dan became a Christian. Uh, his wife had left him, but they started coming to the church, discipled. He met a young lady named Chris. 
discipled them. They got married, and, um, and that, that it was a great marriage. And then, um, and then the next day I get a phone call. And it's, it's a guy named Joe, and Joe said, you know, I work with Dan and Harvey and Steve, and they've been telling me about Jesus. Man, their life has changed, and, uh, and I, I went to their weddings. I've never seen weddings like that before. Can I talk with you? I said, sure, meet me at the Chateau restaurant. Uh, bring a napkin, I think they're out. And uh, so we wrote down three things, and Joe became a Christian, went home, brought his wife, Betty became a Christian. Okay, I'm out of time. I am out of time, so I'll just, I, I'm sorry. I'll, let me just give you a bottom line. Uh, Joe became the president of our men's ministry. Uh, Betty became the director of our women's ministry. Uh, Dan and Chris helped us plant one of our first daughter churches and adopted four kids and helped us bring in an adoption, a Christian adoption agency. Uh, Harvey and Beth, Harvey became an elder and oversaw our evangelism explosion ministry. Steve and his wife, uh, she became the headmaster of our school. Steve became an elder, eventually vice president of Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. And uh, four sons, one of them's your president now. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. It's the righteousness of God from faith to faith. See how it multiplies? So you go. Seek and save the lost. There's no place we won't go. No power he can't overcome. No person so lost he can't save. And no person that he saved that he will not use to seek and save others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege to be with my brothers and sisters. Please bless their, this wonderful enterprise, this precious time in their life. May they make use of it in order to seek and save the lost and Christ be exalted and help us live what we sing. All for Jesus. Amen.